Well, again, I'm Jack. I know I said my name earlier, just in case you don't know, I'm the lead pastor here at Bethany Northeast, so good to be with you. We're in a a three-week series right now. We're in the second of three, so it's called Gather, Go, Grow, where we've done this the last couple years. Um, In the fall, the first few weeks of the fall, though, I think it's technically still summer, so... Um, where we're looking at the values that are of our church, or you could say of any church for that matter, that are, are kind of constitutive of the church's life. So also, I said this last week, but the things that make a church a church. So last week we looked at why we gather and um, talked a bit about what the purpose of worship, gathered worship is, okay? Next week, Silas is going to be teaching on uh, how to grow, how the church grows, and giving some of the vision around what discipleship and, and why we have groups and things like that, what that, why that's important. Today we're going to focus in on... Um, Christ's call to go, so gather, go, grow, which is Christ's call to mission, which you find in every gospel, at the end of every gospel, um, to not just go to church on Sunday, but to be the church, to, to be Christ's expression um, in the city that we live, in the places we live. So let me ask this by way of introduction. How many of you remember your New Year's resolution? <laughs> what a weird question, like none of us. September 16th, what a bizarre question, but the fact is that not only are New Year's resolutions hard to remember, but they're incredibly hard to keep, right? Like, um, we all know this, like, by January 16th, <laughs> if we'd set a New Year's resolution, that's like, we're done, right? We're not going to do it. And, and that no matter how, when we decide to make a change, if it's January 16th, January 1st, I'm sorry, or September 16th, regardless of the kinds of change we, we attempt to undertake in our lives, um, this discouraging fact holds true that only 8% of people who set out to make a change in their lives, whether that's a New Year's resolution or some type of other change, follow it through to completion. Only 8%. So 92% of people, most of us, when we set out to, to set, like begin a new habit or end an old kind of besetting habit, nagging one, we, we cannot do it. We simply just quit. And so the question for us is why? Like, why is change so hard? Why is it so hard? And so stay with me here. This is relevant, but not many of you know this. I got a chemistry minor in my undergrad at University of Puget Sound. I did. Hard to believe. And so in chemistry, there's this concept called activation energy. How many of you guys have heard of this? A few of you. Smarter than I am. So activation energy is the minimum energy that must be available for a chemical reaction to occur. This is why you use things like catalysts in chemical reactions. So the more difficult and complex the reaction, right, the more activation energy that's needed to get the reaction going, okay? And, so, and it's only after that threshold is met that the, that the reaction or the chemical reaction can occur. So, great. Thanks for that little bit of chemistry 101, Jack. Like, what does that have to do with change? And you might guess everything. Because uh, activation energy works just the same when it comes to, to taking action toward a goal as it does in the chemistry lab. So, for example... Uh, any behavior or habit you want to change, whether that's going for a six-mile run around Green Lake, actually that'd be three runs around Green Lake, I guess, or not eating that chocolate chip cookie sitting in the, in the break room, or uh, saving money or cleaning out your garage, you need activation energy just to get that started, okay? Um, the more difficult, more unpleasant that behavior, like cleaning the garage is a great one, the more motivation and willpower, activation energy you need, right, to be able to do that. We might just say this, that doing is not the problem. It's not doing, it's starting that is the, is the really hard thing with change. It's starting that prevents change. So in almost all cases, it's not the actual work. It's not the run. It's not eating right. It's not saving money. 
it's, it, once you start something, have you ever noticed this? Once you, you start doing something that is good for you, it's, you almost can do it without thinking about it. It's the, it's the activation energy. The reaction energy just keeps going. It keeps the, the, the thing alive. But without, the, the activation energy is the hard part. So the question now is, how do you start? How do you start? If you are committed to change in your life, how do you amass enough activation energy for real change to occur? Well, B.J. Fogg, he's a Stanford researcher who specializes in behavior change. Um, he argues there's actually th- only three things in life that will ever, ever uh, change behavior long-term. Here they are. Number one, have an epiphany. This is like the look in the mirror, okay? Um, I broke my hands at the end of last year and proceeded to, to lay on the couch for three solid months and eat cookies and ice cream. And I had a look in the mirror, which was like, man, <laughs> 45 almost, and I want to change. So that was the look in the mirror. But you can expect, you don't want to break your hand every year, so these epiphanies are few and far between. They're, they cannot be fuel for change long-term, okay? So that's number one. But so that's why he has number two, change your environment, okay? And something I talked about a few weeks ago, but this too has problems with it. Because uh, as you might see by looking outside today, although it's sunny right now, our environment is going to work against us, literally, but also figuratively, for the next nine months or so. So it's going to be really hard to do things that you want to do, you know? And... Um, and so that's why number three is so critical. So have an epiphany, change your environment. Here's the third one, what I want to focus in on today. Start ridiculously small. Start ridiculously small. So this is what Fogg calls tiny habits. And the idea behind a tiny habit is that to, you need to make the behavior you're trying to establish or, yeah, I guess it's, let's talk about a positive, establish so small. Like whether that's increasing exercise, spending time with your family, becoming more organized, eating healthier, make it so ridiculously small and easy that it'd be almost impossible not to do it. Almost impossible. And of course, there's been a lot of research about this the past few years as well. So what? <laughs> Thanks for the chemistry. Thanks for the change management. What does this have to do with the gospel? I'm here at church. And, and, and especially God's call to go, to, li- to be a people who, with the hope that Christ has given us, live that out, share that with others. Well, When Jesus says, go, be my witnesses, declare the gospel, as we heard in Luke 10, those are perhaps Jesus' most emphatic commands. Like I said, at the end of every gospel, Jesus articulates something like that. And yet, the the ones we have the most ambivalent relationship with. So, it makes sense. It's easy to understand. Like, you don't need to have a seminary degree like I do to understand the, the command to go. And yet, we have a really hard time, and I'm included with you in this, what that means in our day to day lives. Um, and what's more, we wrestle with sustaining. If you, if you get that in, you're like, oh, yeah, I get what that looks like. Um, hand out tracts. <laughs> you know, tell my friends about Jesus. By the way, that's not what it looks like. We wrestle with sustaining, if we get it in our heads and hearts, sustaining God's desire for us to be a people of mission on the long haul. So we're like the 92% of weary New Year's resolvers who just, we have great intentions and little ambition. Here's how it looks. You go on a mission trip for a week. Right? Go to Africa. Come back. Nothing's changed. You're discouraged. Um, You throw money at a problem. You go to a fundraiser. You're hoping that by doing doing so, big changes, immediate changes are going to take place. And then you realize, you wake up Monday morning, that's not the case. And you're disillusioned. Or you get yourself worked up in a frenzy over an issue like racial injustice or sex trafficking or economic poverty. You blast something on Facebook or Twitter. You wonder why nobody retweets it. Nobody likes it. 
Nobody in the church seems to care. You feel isolated and alone with your burden. Is anybody with me here? And so you're basically, you burn yourself out without ever getting started in God's mission. Here's what I want to say. Could it be that we've misconstrued completely God's call to go? We've heard the Great Commission, go make disciples of all nations. And we realize, oh, we think, oh, that's not me. That's not our church even. We're failing. Is it that we maybe have misconstrued his call to go, that indeed, go, be my witnesses. Acts 1.8, God's proclaim the good news to all people is really actually a set of tiny habits. It's just tiny habits that we're invited to practice on a daily basis, not just once a year on a mission trip, but in the nooks and crannies of our very ordinary lives. We're just ordinary people here. This is a really ordinary church. But that when we do so, when we engage those habits, when we just simply start, just start, take the first step, do it with your kids, um, you'll begin to almost unconsciously see the change um, that you hope to see in, in your life and in the lives of those around you. You'll find that you're part of it, actually. The part, you're part of the change. So the crux of mission, the crux of God's call to go, is actually starting ridiculously small, which is where we come to Luke 10. Luke 10, these verses with the story we read, the sending of the 70, is where you find, I think, these little tiny habits of Jesus regarding mission. And so I want to explore those with you today, just a few of them. There's a lot. Actually, I could go weeks on this passage. It's easily my favorite story in the New Testament. Um, and you've heard me talk about it a few times, but I want to look at just three tiny habits that Jesus articulates. If you have a bulletin and that's where you take notes, ignore. Because I changed this outline <laughs> later in the week as I studied. And so here I'm going to say the three tiny habits for those that do take notes. And you can write these down. So we're going to look at the habit of going together, the habit of receiving, and the habit of knowing that you're known. The habit of going together, the habit of receiving, and the habit of knowing that you're known. Okay? So have your Bibles open if, that, if that'll help you. We're going to look first at verse 1, the habit of going together. Here's what verse 1 says. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them ahead of him, two by two, to every town and place where he was about to go. So I could do a whole sermon on this verse, but I'm just going to give you one point. Go by twos. Now, why is that important? Like, why does Jesus send them out in pairs? And in part, this is really just for mutual encouragement and help. So there's a, there's a ton of verses about this. Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10 are probably the ones we know the best. Two are better than one, right? Because they have a good return on their labor. If one of them falls, the other can help the other one up. Or, or Proverbs 27, 17. How many of you memorized that? As iron sharpens iron, so one person sharpens another. There's tons of verses on this. So in part, the simple wisdom here, as Marshawn Lynch says, if you want to go fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. I know he didn't say that, but I watched a video yesterday on Facebook, and he said that, and it was really good. <laughs> and I miss Marshawn, so it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. So uh, this swims upstream, by the way, against everything in our culture. Everything. I'm not sure if you watched or listened to John McCain's memorial service a couple weeks ago. Um, profound, but Barack Obama gave this speech, right? And if you, if you heard it, you heard him quote Teddy Roosevelt's man in the arena speech. Remember that? That famous one where Roosevelt says, it's not the critic who counts, not the man who points down or points out how the strong man stumbles or where the doer of deeds could have done them better. The credit belongs to what? The man who's actually in the arena. Whether he fails or succeeds doesn't matter. At least he fails by daring greatly. And though I love Teddy Roosevelt, I love that speech, that's not the gospel. That's not consistent with the gospel. I'd say it's utterly inconsistent with the gospel because it presumes that I'm in the arena fighting the good fight on my own. 
It's about me pulling myself up by my bootstraps. That's the myth of rugged Western individualism. And that's, it's just a myth. It's not biblical. It's not gospel. Jesus, it's not the way Jesus called disciples. He called followers out in relationship, always in relationship with others. Going together is the only way Jesus calls us to go. And here's why. You're never going to handle the ordinariness of life. Like I said, we're just ordinary people. And mission's all about living into your life ordinarily. You're never going to handle the ordinariness of life. You're never going to handle the rejection. If you notice some of the, if you were to read the whole passage, I had Kurt omit a few parts because it's long, but there's some rejection in there. You're never going to handle the rejection of the world if you don't have deep relationships with other believers. You're never going to handle it. Lone Christians will perish. I don't mean ultimately. I'm not talking about hellfire and brimstone, but lone Christians will perish. You'll become exhausted, you'll burn out, and you'll perish. This is the lesson from Exodus chapter 18. You remember this story with Jethro uh, and Moses. Jethro is Moses' father-in-law, and he's observing Moses leading and governing the people of Israel. Remember this story? And then he pulls Moses aside, and he says this really amazing thing to Moses. What you're doing, though I think what he was doing was had a good heart. What you're doing is not good, Moses. You and these people, they come to you all the time. You're going to wear yourselves out. The work's too heavy for you. You can't handle it alone. I mean, that is just profound wisdom right there from the mouth of Jethro. You can't do this alone. That's what Jesus is pointing out to these disciples kind of preemptively. He's seeking to prevent burnout. And you're never going to handle the ordinariness of life. It's just ordinary. Just raising a family. Just working at your desk job. Uh, just talking to your neighbor over the fence. That's just ordinary life. Mission trips are just setting us up for failure sometimes. You're never going to handle that. You're never going to handle the rejection of the world. You, you present the gospel in some way through a relationship to a friend. And they're like, heard that one before. I mean, man who died and rose. I mean, that's just pie in the sky. You're never going to handle that if you don't have deep relationships with other believers. Uh, we don't live in relationship to Jesus alone. Jesus is not my cosmic buddy. I, we, live in, we live in response to God's call to go together. Uh, there are numbers of biblical examples of this. I already mentioned Jethro and Moses. You have Joshua and Caleb, David, David and Jonathan, Ruth and Naomi. I love that uh, verse from the beginning of, of Ruth. Where you go, I go. Your people, my people. Where you die, I die. Your God, my God. Have you ever said that to somebody else, another believer? Wherever you go, I go. This is why we emphasize uh, so uh, strongly in our church the covenant of marriage, but also the covenant of baptism, and then uh, we don't call it a covenant, but child dedication. Why we do this routinely. I mean, many of you have had your children dedicated on this stage. The reason we do that, the reason we ask questions to the parents, and the reasons we ask questions to you as members of the, the family of faith is because we believe that we, we go into life, whether you're a baby or an adult, together. We must. We're wired for relationship. Um, and, and so, do you have relationships with other believers? I know you have, you must, because you're here. But some of you, I just have to say to those that do, I mean, some people are here and they're, they're looking for relationship. And uh, shame on us when we only talk to the people that we know. When we only say hi to the three or four people that you're kind of connected to. That's why you're here. And we, we miss out on the opportunity to, to more deeply connect with the body of Christ that's here and be equipped for the mission of God that's out there. That's why we, one reason we gather on Sunday and we're being equipped to go. And so 
Are you looking for those faces of people as you're gathered here on Sunday that you may not know as a, as a way to equip you more fully for God's mission? And if you, if you are and you're wondering, man, I've been seeking that, here, here's what Jesus says, pray in verse 2. Pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. Are you praying for that person? Are you praying for Jesus to put somebody into your life if you're feeling like you're kind of alone right now in what you do, in your work or in your friendships? Um, I want to exhort us toward being an answer to our own prayers. Like toward this year, as we encounter people in our church, just think of Bethany Northeast. Maybe it's people in your neighborhood. I've got four or five families in my neighborhood that attend this church. That's pretty cool. I bet every one of you does. Praying for people in your neighborhood, your workplace. I bet you have some people in your workplace. They may not attend our church, but they may be believers. To join you, or maybe you join them in God's mission, which is just to declare that Christ is good. God is good, and he loves you. Um, You can't do it alone. So that's number one. Go together. Here's number two. It's really actually related to this first one. It's the habit of receiving. So go together and then go receiving. And this is in verses 5 to 9. So I'll give you the context. Jesus sends out 70, some verse translations say 72. Don't worry about the numbers. The important thing is he sends them out with no personal effects. So loved the translation we read. That was called the voice, but here's the NIV. I'm sending you out as lambs among wolves. Don't carry a money bag. Don't carry a knapsack. Don't wear sandals and don't greet anybody on the road. So they're to take nothing for the journey. No supplies, no credit cards, <laughs> no day, day pack. And it's Jesus, I lead the Bethany Wilderness Ministry. I don't know if you knew we had one, but I get to do that. Um, and uh, if he was a wilderness instructor, like, I'm sorry, but he's a miserable failure. Because, like, the 10 essentials, I mean, you don't even got one essential here. So you're going to die. No wonder he says you're going to go out like lambs among wolves. Like, you're just, I mean, I don't know if you knew this about sheep, but they are probably the one creature on planet Earth without any natural defense. They can, they have nothing. They're, they, we'll go down that road some other time, but they are helpless. And that's just the point. The gospel, one of the unique aspects of the gospel that I want to hone in on with you for a moment that runs countercultural to our, the way our world runs is powerlessness. We, we, we believe in a gospel and a God of, that, that gave up power. Um, remember what Jesus says in 2 Corinthians to Paul. My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in what? Weakness. Not just your weakness, because some of us like to add the your, well, Paul's weak, right? But Jesus says it's made perfect in weakness, just as an abstract idea. Powerlessness, weakness is a, is a unique feature of the gospel. I heard this from Richard Rohr recently. He puts it so beautifully. He's a, a priest down in New Mexico, but he says this in Paul's letters. He consistently idealizes not power, but powerlessness, not strength, but weakness. It's as if he's saying, and these are Rohr's words, I glory when I fail and suffer because now I get to be like Jesus, the, na- Jesus, the naked loser God. And those are his words. <laughs> I don't want to get struck by lightning. And then he goes on to say, the revelation of the death and resurrection of Jesus forever redefines what success and winning mean. And it's not what most of us want or expect. On the cross, God revealed as vulnerability. We heard vulnerability in that passage. That's why we chose that that translation. God is revealed as vulnerability. By the way, the Latin word vulnerability comes, or the word vulnerability comes from the Latin word vulnera, which means woundedness. So that's what he's saying. You're going out as wounded ones 
Isn't that cool? Uh, We ourselves grow through vulnerability, through woundedness, not through any need to posture, pose, or present yourself. And until you understand, this is Rorigan, until you understand that truth at some level, even if it takes until later years of your life, you cannot understand the gospel. You can't even begin to understand the gospel. The gospel is revealed in vulnerability, in woundedness. And Jesus says, I send you out in it, in vulnerability, without anything. Um, and, and it's in that vulnerability that we actually begin to understand and practice this habit of receiving. So, like I said, we're, we're said to go receiving. Uh, because you can't receive anything from anyone until you realize that you, have, you need something. Until, some of my friends, as they say this, until your hands are up and they're empty, you're open. You're saying, hey, I, I can't, I'm not an autonomous, self-sufficient being. I need people, I, I need what they can offer me. I'm poor, I'm weak, I need help. And these people needed help. They needed a lot of help. In the same way, we're called to go out into the world together in, to receive from that world. So go into the world for which Christ died to receive from the world for which Christ died. We're called to re, into reliance on others for provision. Not just, now I'm talking about not just Christians. Because if you go into this story, it's not clear as the people knock on those doors if they've begun to follow Jesus or not yet. They're just knocking on doors. Hey, I don't have any food. Can I stay with you? Um, we're called to re, reliance on others' provision, uh, called to receive from him. And this has a, a really powerful shaping effect on the mission of God and how we engage in that mission. And here's how. Here's what he says. In your going, this is Jesus, when you come to a house uh, that receives you, first say peace to that house. And we'll get to this in a moment. And then if they welcome you, remain in that house, eating and drinking whatever they provide. This is the receiving part. Don't move about from house to house. Whenever you enter a town, it's people welcome you, eat or receive whatever is set before you. So receiving, uh, remaining leads to receiving, just being there. And this is so significant because what we see throughout this teaching is that Jesus is using the language of strangers who receive hospitality from, from hosts. And in that way, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is redefining for us what hospitality really means. I, I know in Seattle we're a big foodie city. Um, we think hospitality means Martha Stewart. We think it's like this amazing food from great restaurants, and I love that stuff, but that's not what Jesus is talking about. Uh, hospitality, biblically, was a common practice in Jesus' day especially because there's no hotels and restaurants, and Jesus is the one who's telling them to go with nothing. <laughs> so when you go out as a traveler, you come to a town— you're looking for food, drink, and shelter, and in his case, clothing. <laughs> so this, so this culture arose around the practice of taking in travelers as guests because there wasn't a Motel 6. There, there weren't restaurants. So you could just pull a credit card out and buy your next meal. And it was a high honor or privilege if you had the capacity, you had an extra room or you had extra food because you were wealthier. You had maybe a closet full of clothes like all of us may have. It's a high honor or privilege in Jesus' day to extend hospitality to, to travelers. It meant that you had food to spare, room to spare, time to spare. And it brought honor on you as your, in, your, in your family, in your community. You were honored. You were now a person of status because you took in that traveler. Um, and we know that from the Gospels, Jesus actually spent his life as a traveler, a weary traveler. He was an itinerant rabbi. 
Matthew 8, Luke 9, said that he had nowhere to lay his head. He's the guest. Just like he's sending out the 70. He went from village to village, just teaching and preaching and healing and performing miracles. He lived his life this way. And so here in Luke 10, he's just saying, live your life like I'm living mine. Pattern your living and you're going after my living and my going. Just do what I do. Spread the gospel like I'm spreading the gospel. And what's more, after this time, these early Christian writings begin to circulate around the church, around this idea of hospitality. Very different than our idea. So Romans 12, 13, contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show them hospitality. Welcome them into your life. Okay? Hebrews 13, 2, don't neglect to show hospitality to who? Strangers. People who are different than you. And these writings at a level uh, reflect that cultural value. But here, here's something more important. They re- reflect a spiritual value of living as Christ did. So in Hebrews 13, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. What does the author add to that verse? Remember this? For in doing so, some have entertained angels unaware. And what that author is referring back to is this story in Genesis 18 and Abraham and these three strangers who are traveling through the desert. And that's another sermon for another day because they go on to Sodom, and I'm not going to go down there. But the point is that Abraham, without realizing when he welcomes these three people, and he feeds them, and he cares for them, and actually it's his wife. So Abraham gets all the credit, but you get the point. Look how significant. They're angels, three angels. Uh, A professor, retired professor that taught my wife, William Lane. How many of you ever had William Lane as a professor? None of you. Well, I'm a little older. So he said this about Hebrews uh, 13, he said, or 12. He said that for Christians, the message in there, don't neglect to show hospitality to strangers. For some, in doing so, have entertained angels unaware. For Christians, the message here is that God will play a significant role in the ordinary exchange. Remember, it's ordinary life. Mission is just ordinary stuff. In the ordinary exchange between guests and hosts. And this expectation that God is present lends to the practice of hospitality a sacramental quality or sacred quality. In other words, hospitality, welcoming strangers, sitting at a table with people, Um, whether that's a lunch meeting you're going to have this week, a dinner date, whether it's your next door neighbor, uh, inviting them in or being invited in, whether it's the person sitting next to you today in worship that you don't know yet. (laughs) Every encounter with every person is potentially extraordinary. Every person, as C.S. Lewis says somewhere, is, is certainly sacred. And, and so you have an opportunity, as you gather with people, to experience salvation, to experience the sacredness of God in them, and then convey God's grace to them. So the gospel is discovered around tables, is what I'm trying to say here. And this is great news for all the foodies, <laughs> like in the room, like supremely good news that we're created for table fellowship. But here's where I want to give you some bad news tables are never just about food. Like the meal you have this week with um, maybe a coworker or a neighbor is never just about eating the food. It's about the sacred space. What did Jesus say? Verse 5. Let's go back to the text. When you enter a house, first say peace to the house. And then in verse 8, when you enter a town and are welcomed, eat what's offered, but then what do you do? Heal the sick. Tell them the kingdom of God has come near to you. And so the Hebrew word for peace there, you know, well, it's, he's using Greek, but the Hebrew word Jesus would have used is shalom. And I've talked about this before. It's the equivalent of God's restoration or wholeness. Um, it's, as one person puts it, the fullest, 
flourishing you can imagine in every dimension of life. It's a life filled with joy and uh, perfection. I mean, you can't imagine a shalom life. We haven't experienced it. So you're at a table, you're in a relationship with somebody, you're going deeper in that friendship, and there'll be times that you need to, I'm just going to challenge you, you need to see that it's about more than just the food, and as much as I like eating out and eating food with people, and more than just the friendship, as much as friendship is important to me. There'll be times where you need to declare peace, not just wish peace, like, oh, I hope that you have a better life, but declare peace. That, that, that's a possibility. There'll be times where you need to not just wish for reconciliation in a relationship, whether that's racial reconciliation or reconciliation in a broken relationship with a family member, as I often experience, you, you need to declare that. It's, Jesus has won reconciliation for us, and we're invited to do that, to declare in each other's lives that Jesus is a good king. Uh, the kingdom of God is near you. That Because he's King Jesus, he's good. He lived, he died, he rose, he conquered death. Uh, his good kingdom is breaking in. The kingdom of God is near to you. And that restoration is not just hoped for. It's promised. And that renewal of all things is actually happening today. You may not see it, but it's happening. Our calling is to remind people that Jesus is more than just this friend that I go visit once a week at church, but he's renewing all things, including our lives and our communities. He's taking these shattered hearts that we have in our heart and our bodies and repairing them. He's taking our broken bodies, he's healing them. He's taking our fading hope and he's reviving it. He's taking the disintegrating world, and he's restoring it. This is what Jesus does, and this is what he's calling us to do. Uh, And I had a chance to do this this week, a little bit, with a friend. We're sitting at lunch earlier this week, a member of our church, and he did it with me. We're having Thai, and we're sharing our stories. He's sharing his story of a failed marriage. I'm sharing mine of a broken family. And we're both declaring hope to each other. We're saying, you know, I see in you more than you can see in yourself. I see God at work in your life through that failure. And though he didn't see this, I think I was looking over this next table next to us. There's these three young guys having lunch together, and they're looking quizzically at us as we're speaking this hope into each other's lives. And we're subtly weeping, you know, like this, and we're being tender, two men having lunch, being tender toward each other. And I'm not sure what they thought, but I don't care. <laughs> because here's the point. My focus with anyone, with a friend or with anyone of you I don't know, or with a neighbor who may not even know Jesus yet, is I get to declare that the kingdom of God is real. And that peace is not just a wish, a pipe wish dream, but it's, it's something that you can grab onto today. And I'm in your life for that purpose. That there will be always greater wholeness because of our relationship. This is what it means for us. I believe, as we're invited to enter into the, war- like the warp and the woof of people's lives and their homes and our- around tables, just to engage life, to go deeper than the surface, like live into people's stories with them, dialogue around the things that matter to them, um, just catch a whiff of the Spirit of God birthing new forms of witness around you and saying, that's God. God is at work. Do you believe that? So who's, let me ask this question before we move on. Uh, who is it whose table you've been invited to? Because remember, Jesus has invited you to go out into these foreign places, knock on doors, and when they invite you in, to do that. Like, has anyone given you permission to sit down with them? You've got permission to be in a relationship, 
and you have an opportunity to declare peace in their life. It could be a coworker, could be a student at a school you work in, it could be just your neighbor. I mean, who knows? It could be a family member. Perhaps someone in our neighborhood here. This is why we do a community meal each month, or we help host it. It's not just about the food. It's about this opportunity we have to, to go deeper in that encounter, that space. And if you haven't had a chance, go talk to Alicia or, or Silas about getting on that calendar so you can experience what I'm talking about. This is why I continue to emphasize neighborhood groups, though they're kind of, they're kind of wonky, you know, these things. But that's so we might know that there are people in our neighborhoods that would never dark, so darken the door of a church. I don't mean that pejoratively toward people, but they'd never think to come here on a Sunday. And so we have an opportunity to, to, again, go together, bond with others in our lives that follow Christ, to then declare peace to our neighborhoods. There are hundreds of thousands of people in Seattle that, that have not heard the gospel. And our neighborhoods are places we get to do that. That's why God gave you a zip code. Not just so you could have savings for later in life, but so that you could declare the peace of God today. Um, So go together, go receiving, and then finally, go knowing that you're known. And this is in verses 17 to 20, that last little paragraph. And so, and don't miss this. This is the most important thing. I get amped about the other two, but this is the most important thing. So if you hear nothing else today, hear this. So to summarize, the 70 come back, and like, wow, Jesus, it totally worked. Like, we went out, and the demons submitted to us. It was amazing. Like, and Jesus is like, yeah, you're pretty awesome. Like, I watched the devil fall like lightning. That was pretty cool. You're good. But then he says this really important thing. Verse 20, don't miss this. Don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So what that you cast a few demons out? big deal. So what if your neighbor prayed to receive Christ? I mean, that's important. Don't hear me wrong. But don't rejoice in that fact. Rejoice that your names are written in heaven. So back then, to have your name written down was a huge deal. So today, not so much. Everyone has a social media handle. And, you know, and if you really want to make sure your social media handle is yours, you put the real Jack Brace, you know, I guess. And then there's mentions and there's tags. And then you can just Google your name. I Googled mine. 23.3 million results in a half a second. Pretty sweet. <laughs> a lot of people talking about me. But in that day, the point is, nobody had their name written down. There was no Google, I don't think. No social media, no internet. And, and so if, only if you were really rich, really rich, and you'd done something really important, okay? The equivalent today would be is if you gave like $4 million, $5 million to the University of Washington, they'll slap your name on the side of a building. That's the only equivalent I can think of. The rest of the population, which includes, I think, most, all of us, <laughs> we're just peons. We are ordinary people, okay? So to have your name written down means you had done something significant in your community. And thus, Jesus, I think, is speaking about where we find our significance, where we find our identity and our worth, uh, he says, don't rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but your names are written in the book of life. Don't get your identity. Don't derive your significance. Establish your worth on how well you did something, on your gifts, your spiritual gifts, or any other gift you've been given. From your abilities, your accomplishments, how much you've helped other people, how many tables you ate at, how many people you met with this week, your performance, I mean, whatever it is, how many sales you did, right? How many calls you made. Don't do that. And by the way, this is something I think all of us struggle with, but as a professional Christian, 
right here. And I'll just call Silas out here too. I can tell you, we'll be the first to raise our hands that we struggle with this, putting our worth in how well we pastor, like how well I preach any given week and how many, you know, people are being served by our church and our community and our attendance numbers and our outreach programs and then whether we're known as a church, like if people know about us and like how good of a husband and a father I am. I feel like I'm always being evaluated according to that. If I can just do those things, then I'm good. I'm somebody. I've made it in the world. And Jesus is warning me. He's warning each of you too, wherever you're at, don't do that. Don't go down that track. Don't rejoice in those things because they're going to only lead to pain. Either to insecurity because you're going to always feel like you're never good enough, which is my challenge, or pride and arrogance because you're going to be looking down on people going, man, I'm doing pretty good. Yeah, look how messed up their family is. They were fighting on the way in. <laughs> Woo! Look at their kids. Look at our numbers. That little church down the street. Ugh. You know, look at our performance. Jesus, don't do that because it will only to you to, uh, you to abuse yourself and to abuse others probably. So what do we do? Here's what we do. Here's the habit. Know that you're known. Know that you're known. Um, rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in knowing that you're known. That's what that means. He's saying, I know who you are. I've got you. I got your name written down. You're significant to me. You didn't have to do anything because I did it. That's all that matters anymore. To be known, not, not just saved, but known. Not just do a job day in and day out like some sort of minion, but to be known by somebody. Not just to serve the poor, but to, and do acts of justice and mercy, those, those are important, but to be known by one who is poor and who is just and merciful. That's the most important thing. That's what we're made for. We're made for that relationship, which drives every other relationship we'll have. If we get that right, <laughs> that we're made for relationship with Christ, it will drive every relationship in the right direction. And that's Jesus' message here. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. Rejoice in the fact that you're known by God. And, and as you're known, know that you're profoundly loved. You are profoundly loved. More than you could ever imagine. So how might this look? Let me just give you one practical handle, and then we'll wrap up with some worship. Um, something maybe to practice this week. When you come to Scripture, so Jesus is talking about the book of life, isn't talking about our Bibles. He's talking about this idea that there'll be a book that God opens up and there'll be names in it. But I want to expand that idea a little bit and think about it as Scripture. When you're reading the Bible devotionally and you're approaching the Word of God in a group you're involved in, your small group or your quiet time, your, your, your daily devotion, or even here on Sunday, you're sitting here listening to me yak away, what kinds of questions are you actually asking? Are you asking questions? Like even as I'm talking, are you thinking, I don't know if I agree. Huh, I never thought of that. Here's a question I have I want to talk about with my friend or my spouse later. And if so, if you are asking questions, because I hope you are, here's a few questions I'd love to invite you to govern that exploration along the lines of rejoicing and knowing that you're known. Number one, how does this scripture that we're in, now the gospel's easy, but Old Testament, a psalm, a proverb, the book of Lamentations, how does this book reveal Jesus, the king, the good king? The kingdom of God has come near to us. How does this book, this passage, this little story, this, this poem demonstrate God's love? 
God's character. That's the number one thing. Whenever you come to the Bible, that's the first question you should always be asking. How does this show Jesus? But number two, how is Jesus, if he's in this scripture, if he's, if he's, if he's living within it, if it's indeed alive and active, and if Jesus is, is alive in it, and if he's speaking my name, remember, your names are written in it. <laughs> how is this scripture speaking my name? How is it speaking to me? Um, personally, you know, there's that devotional called uh, Jesus Calling, right? And some of you have used this. Well, uh, apply that idea to your, your scriptures, not just somebody's devotional book. Like, how is this gospel story speaking God's love to me? To me. Um, saying, to you, saying to you, you're, you, you have more potential than you know. You are beautiful. You are wonderfully made. You think you're only a failure? I don't see success. I see promise. I see goodness. I see hope. Um, I see mercy. That's the second thing. Would you meditate on God's call to you through the word? And here's the last thing, as he's calling to you. This is, this is the cool thing. How might you be shaped by that word? Um, for the mission of God through you, ask Jesus, okay, I see you in this. I hear you calling to me. As you call me, would you lead me? Like my next step. I mean, that's the, really, I can think of other reasons maybe to read the Bible, but the one that I get most excited about is helping to shape me and equip me to take the next step, whether that's in a relationship, in my work, or just in a personal thing I'm dealing with. Like, God, shape my life. That's what it means to know that you're known, just to come to the Word of God as if it's alive and you're having an engaging encounter there, not to memorize words and passages and information. That's, put that aside. Rejoice in knowing that you're known. That's the life for which you've been created in me, in our church. And I believe that, and I believe when we do that, when the church goes like that, practicing these things, going together, just receiving what's put before us, knowing we're known, we're going to be a people, though we're small, of incredible hope, and that amazing changes happen because of the lives you get to touch. And that's what I want to see for us in this coming year. All right? So I want to invite our worship team forward. Um, and I want to pray for, uh, through these next two th- songs, we're going to sing two more songs. I said that God speaks through his word. He speaks through his people too, so that um, there might be chances in our last few moments together for God to speak through worship. Maybe you'll pray for somebody or pray for somebody. Um, Maybe you'll hear a word from God that you need to share with someone. Libby's going to be over here, and she'd love to pray with you if you'd like to have somebody stand with you. But also that person next to you might just do the same thing. So I want to pray for that kind of encounter and response this morning as we respond in worship. Let's pray. God, thank you for the opportunity we now have to, uh, to respond to the word that we've just heard. I want to just set aside everything I've said, God, and ask you to speak. Every one of us, God, came in here with something different, carrying something different, a different expectation, a different need, a different desire. Um, but I think all of us have one similar desire, God, and that's that you might, uh, we might encounter you, that you might speak to us in some way. Maybe that's a word of hope, God. Would you speak hope into our lives this morning? Maybe that's a word of courage. We have something hard to face this week. Would you give us the courage? Maybe it's faith. We're just struggling, God, right now to believe. Um, there's just been a lot of things in our lives against us. Fill us with belief, God. We thank you that you're here. 
thank you that you are alive. We thank you that you want to speak to us personally today. So we pray this in Christ's name.